We began a series last week on the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And so we continue now as he writes to this church, encouraging them in the truth to be conformed to that truth. We'll read this morning, as I said, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17. Let's attend to the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? God, we come to your word this morning to listen, to hear, to hear you speaking through your word to us. And I pray that I would be a servant to that task, not a hindrance, that you would give us the faith and the understanding by your spirit. In the name of Christ, amen. This morning, we are reading a letter written by a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago to a group of people in Corinth who were Romans, to a city almost none of us have been to, in a language that most of us cannot understand, speak, or read. Why should we listen to it? What does it have to say to us? Well, I think that you will find the words of Paul to the church in Corinth, instructive and helpful for you this morning. If you have ever asked the question, where should I sit? If you've gone into the cafeteria in high school, if you've gone into the lunchroom at a new job, if you visited a church and they're trying to find your seat or gone to a business conference, you might find yourself asking the question, where should I sit? which is not so much about what part of the room you should sit in, but at whose table you should sit. This is captured in so many movies and TV shows about high school, where the new kid has to figure out what table do they sit at. Do they sit with the pretty people, with the athletic people, with the scientific nerds, with the kids who are interested in drama or music, or do they not fit into any of those tables, and should they sit by themselves? Because the question of where should I sit often stands in for where will I fit in? What group can I be a part in? Who will accept me as a part of them? And yet, as so many of us experience that, not just in high school, where we're really figuring out our gifts and our personalities, where we're coming into our own bodies, but this continues throughout our work 
in our lives as parents and other people in various stages is that it's not just enough to decide what group we think we fit in. It's not that you say, you know what, I'm a jock. You know what, I'm a mom. You know what, I'm a businessman. And then you say, that's who I am and now I fit in. If that was true, high school kids would be the least anxious people in all of society because they're always trying to figure out what group I'm a part of. And there sometimes they have the most divided lunchrooms of all. But even after you are part of that group, we often experience anxiety. Because what makes you a part of that group? And oftentimes we will ask ourselves, do I really fit in? Am I really smart enough, pretty enough? Do I wear the right clothes enough to be really a part of this group? And so we doubt whether we belong. Or at the same time, because we've been accepted into a group or we feel like we fit in a group, that often means that we have to accept the fact that we're not in that group. But if we're not accepted in that group, what does that say about us? Then we have to say, well, to be a part of that group is less than in order for me to feel good about the fact that I fit in this group. And so we spend time denigrating that group and policing the boundaries of our group so that we fit in. Finding a group in which we are accepted, we come to find out, doesn't truly lead to our security or acceptance. This is what Paul is speaking to this morning in the church in Corinth. This is what he's speaking to us this morning. What is Paul's letter to the Corinthians about? We, we talk about some hints and some shadows in the greeting and thanksgiving, but the central concern driving Paul's letter to the Corinthians is summed up in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, that certainly includes the sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That is not my determination, but in the day and age, not just of biblical letters, but any letter that any person in this time would send, this verse with this grammar at this place in the letter is like the subject line of your email. I can send you an email and I can say, dear so-and-so, I hope you've had a good week. I hope that you're enjoying the weather. And you know that that's not what the email's about. You might even skip past those niceties, if they're mere niceties, because the subject line says, Hey, schedule reminder, this meeting is coming up. Or did you know this event is going on in the church? Because you know that's what the email is about. Paul is saying, this letter comes because this is what I desire for you. Now what does he mean, though? Paul is driven not only by concern but by the authority of Christ under which he ministers that there would be unity and agreement and a lack of division in the church of Corinth. But what does he mean by that? Is Paul speaking of uniformity? He says he wants them all to agree, to have the same judgment in mind. Does he want sameness? Does he want them to act in lockstep? Does he want cookie-cutter Christians that all look the same, that all dress the same, that all make the same decisions in how they live out the Christian life. And maybe if you just read the words there in verse 10, you might be led to believe that, understandably. 
But when we read what follows in the passage, when we read the rest of the letter, when we see what Paul says to other churches in his letters, we see that's not what he means. In fact, what Paul is doing is pointing to the gospel hope for difference, for diversity, to continue within the church. A unity in Christ which serves as the basis by which we evaluate difference, distinguish distinguish between our preferences and our priorities. When we choose a group to determine whether they accept us and say, this is my group, this is who I fit in with, then we begin to make decisions more and more based on whether what we're doing or saying or dressing allows us to fit into the group and less and less about whether it is good or right or helpful to do that thing. And what Paul is saying is, you are a church of different men and women and different stations in life. What I want you to do is to agree that the basis by which you evaluate your preferences, your giftings, your various callings, is not according to those preferences or priorities or differences, but according to the same mind that is yours in Christ. Paul is not opposed to difference or diversity. He writes his letters to those who are married and to those who are single, upholding both. He speaks of a variety of spiritual giftings, not expecting everyone to have all those gifts or all the same calls within the church. He acknowledges the diversity of financial situations in the church, the different situations happening in different churches. No, what Paul says concerns him is that he hears that there are schisms divisions, chasms between people in the church, that Chloe's people report to him that there is quarreling. You may hear quarreling and you may think of little kids squabbling over toy. This word is often translated strife. It is angry, it is distrustful. It can lead not beyond warring of words to things like fistfights and violence. Now we see similar language in Romans 12 where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Just as Paul started out calling the Corinthians to see their shared calling and hope in Christ and how that call places them in the community of all Christians who call on the name of Jesus everywhere. Paul is inviting them to see Christ as the starting point, as their touchstone, as their anchor, the highest value by which they discern what is good and what is right and what is pleasing to God and how they live out their different callings, their different giftings, their different preferences, their different styles. That while they may be Jew and Greek, while they may be slave and free, rich and poor, young and old, married and single, that they would all start from who they are in Christ and look at their lives through that lens and through that standard. What Paul wants for his beloved brothers and sisters is not to eliminate their differences, but what we most often do with those differences and distinctions, to turn them into things that divide us, that lead us to quarreling, to judging, to dividing, and even, at times, to violence and warfare. That's what Paul means. What's wrong, and and how did it happen? 
The rest of the letter will touch on various places of disagreement and division and conflict over gifts, over what to do about sexuality, about with regard to food, sacrifice to idols. But here, Paul points to the most prominent symptom of the disease. He says that Chloe's people report to him, and he's in Ephesus when he writes this, and it seems that Chloe may be a businesswoman who sends workers in trade to Corinth because it's a big trade center, and so they, they go and make contact with Christians there in Corinth, and then they hear about what's going back, and they report back to Paul. But regardless of who she is, those associated with her report that there is quarreling, that there is strife, and it takes the form of some saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or even some that say, I follow Christ. Who are these people? Well, Apollos was a gifted and eloquent man who Paul's colleagues, Priscilla and Aquila, helped set straight on some areas of theology and baptism, filling in some gaps. Cephas, most of you will know as Peter, the apostle. We know who Paul is, who writes to them, and we know who Christ is. We might look at the last one and say, well, isn't that what you want, Paul? It, it might be bad to say, I'm of Apollos, he's my guy, or I'm of Paul, he's my guy, or I'm of Peter, he's my guy, but don't we want to say, I'm of Christ? Isn't that what we should all say? But even there, as he responds to that, he says, is Christ divided? Now this is the second English use of the word division, but it's different than what's earlier in the passage. And this word can point not to just things being being cut up or, and divided, but things being apportioned off. And what he's pointing to is the same mentality that says, I'm with Paul, but not Apollos. I'm with Apollos, but not with Peter. Is the attitude by which some are saying, I'm with Christ, unlike the rest of you. Using Christ as if we can somehow gather to ourself the determination of Christ as the one that defines us. You just might see this in the way that if you were to Google online Church of Christ, that you would see uh, not only thousands of churches, but hundreds of denominations. Because we have this tendency to say, well, I was part of this church, but now we're the real Church of Christ. We're the Orthodox Church of Christ. We're the confessional. We're the congregational Church of Christ. The issue is not that they are actually conformed to Christ and following Christ, but they are saying, we follow Christ while you follow Paul. It is a tendency which leads not to faithfulness, but to factionalism. This is, in fact, what leads to what some of us think of, or some people in the world think of, when they think of a Christian mentality as cookie-cutter Christians, who all dress alike, who all speak alike, who all vote alike, who all drive similar cars, who all educate their children the same way. Where does that tend to come from? It tends not to come from, not from unity, but from division and fear of others. Where we say, I can't, that difference is dangerous. My preference is ultimate. And so I'm going to withdraw from that difference. 
because Apollos is the best form. Because Peter's Christianity is the best expression. Because Paul is the most faithful servant of Jesus. I want that kind of Christianity. And the only way that I can know that I'm a good Christian is if everyone else agrees with me and looks like me and speaks like me. Paul doesn't want that uniformity. He wants that privileging of our preferences that leads to such types of Christianity and factionalism and divisionalism and tribalism and warfare to be put to death. How does it happen? Is this a case of celebrity pastors gathering a calling for themselves? Well, we know Paul doesn't like it. He's appalled by it. He speaks of Apollos in good, glowing terms the rest of the time. He doesn't accuse Apollos. We don't even know for sure if Peter ever went to Corinth. And while there's a truth that there are men and there are leaders who might use their names to gain a following for themselves, their status, that comes from the same thing we see at play here. That is, where we take a preference, we take a characteristic, we take something we like, and we prioritize it over Christ. We say, this is who I am, this is my identity, and therefore I look at Christ, I look at Christianity, through whether or not, not how does it fit into following Christ, but how does Christ fit into that category. Here in Corinth, it's, it's shown in verse 17. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Corinthians loved eloquent wisdom. They loved those who could skid up on soapboxes in the marketplace and present beautifully crafted, beautifully worded speeches. We have documents from dates around this time of people going to the marketplace to hear competing rhetoricians and saying, he is the most beautiful speaker. His wisdom is the best. And not just that they did that, but that there would be fist fights in those same places because they would argue about who was the most eloquent, best speaker. Corinth valued rhetoric. The ability not so much to present the truth, but to speak eloquence and beautifully crafted words. And what they've done is, many of them have said, Apollos, who is described in Acts 18 as an eloquent speaker, he's the best speaker. The way he talks about Jesus is the best. My love of rhetoric, my love of beautiful words is what allows me to love Jesus. And so that to love Jesus is to love rhetoric like me. A preference or a distinction has become an identity marker which has been made ultimate over Christ and the salvation he accomplished. We like, we value eloquent speech. We value those who like it too, who value eloquent speech and wisdom. And those who don't are less than, we don't need them. In fact, they might be dangerous to us. For others, it might have been loyalty to Paul as the first worker, or to Peter for his position of closeness to Jesus. We have in us this temptation to take a difference, make it a distinction, 
and a grounds, therefore, for division. It is the elevation of something over Christ and against other Christians that leads to such schisms, divisions, and quarreling among us. Many of us might speak of real Christianity. Well, real Christianity is active. If you love Jesus, then you're going to be active for him. We have five Bible studies. We have three VBSs. You can come to these six studies. It is active and it is living. That's real Christianity. Others would say real Christianity reflects our personal worship style. Whether it's sedate and calm and lacking in instruments, or whether it's loud and bombastic and energetic. Or others would say, well, real Christianity votes the way that we do. Or real Christianity looks this way. And what we end up with is our self-created definitions of real Christianity. And to do so is to lose our brothers and sisters and risk losing sight of Christ. Paul says, I did not come preaching with eloquent wisdom. Because eloquent wisdom is bad? No. But because it was so valued in the sights of the Corinthians that to use it would be to risk the cross of Christ being emptied of its power. This is why it matters. Because if we focus on our own preferences and our own distinctives and our own styles, we risk losing our calling. We risk forgetting who called us. Paul uses baptism here to help us. He asks, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Remember, baptism didn't start with Jesus. It didn't even start with John the Baptist. But it was used by many teachers and leaders as a way of identifying their disciples. But Paul says, you weren't baptized in my name. You weren't baptized in order to follow me. And I'm glad I didn't baptize so many of you because it would have risked more of you associating yourselves with me. He's not saying that's what Apollos was trying to do. He's not saying that's what Cephas was trying to do. But they were taking the mark of their belonging to Christ and looking to who applied it instead of the one who was calling them into relationship with him. It causes us to risk forgetting what we were called to receive. That is the gospel, the good news. Paul is not rejecting the importance of baptism here. In fact, most of our theology and understanding of baptism and how it relates as a sign and seal and how it unites us to Christ's death and resurrection comes from Paul. He's not rejecting its importance, but rather what he is rejecting is our temptation to confuse baptism with what it signifies and points to. The good news. The gospel, but what kind of gospel? The gospel of what Christ did, which was to go to the cross and die. The Corinthians, they're not in love. The Romans aren't in love with the idea of a crucified Savior, and we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But Paul's point is that baptism points to our union with Christ, who was crucified for us, for our salvation. Paul says, were you, were, was I crucified for you? No, Jesus was. The good news was not Paul. The good news was not baptism. The good news was not Apollos' rhetoric. The good news was the cross of Christ. If we forget that, we risk forgetting what we are called from. Things that don't have the power to save us. 
lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We often look to other things to give us what only Christ can offer. Things that cannot save us. Can being accepted by a certain social group, having a certain number of kids, attaining to a certain level of acceptance as a business person, getting married or not getting married and having that freedom, can any of that accomplish the security and assurance of knowing that we are loved, that we are safe. If those things could, we wouldn't experience so much anxiety, so much fear, so much willingness to attack others for being different from us. Instead, what the power of the cross is able to do is show that God accepts us not because we fit a style, not because we're good enough, not because we're lovable, but because he loved us enough to send his son to die for us to make us acceptable to him. Paul is not here to repudiate the giftedness of other teachers, not to repudiate eloquence, not to repudiate his ministry or Peter's ministry or Apollos' ministry, but Paul doesn't use eloquence because he knows that the Corinthians might see the eloquence more than the power of Christ. We give our kids vitamins because we want them to be healthy. You know what our little ones think of when they get vitamins? Candy. Because medicine can be bitter. Medicine can be difficult to swallow. Vitamins can be distasteful. And so what do we do? We package them in little sugar gelatins with little cute shapes, so that they will eat them. And the result is, yes, they're made healthier and their immune systems might be boosted, but that's not what my three-year-old and my two-year-old think. They just think candy. Our tendency to find community in that which we value, in that which is like us, and our attempt to be held together in that, in our preferences, our tastes, our history, our skin color, our politics, is to risk shadowing Christ under what is already acceptable to us, instead of acknowledging that none of those things could save us. We need Christ. God has made us for himself, for unity, even though he is God and we're not. He made a diverse world of all kinds of animals who walk the earth, of birds that fly, of valleys and mountains and meadows, of every creeping and crawling thing, of vast cosmos and planets and galaxies. And yet in that diversity and that difference, when God made those things, he said it is good because all those things had their place as his creation. It wasn't until sin entered the world that the difference between man and woman became an issue. Between the difference between who God was as creator and who we are as creatures became a reason to reject or try to take from God. To blame others for our problems as Adam did Eve and Eve did the serpent. Paul calls us to instead see the power of the cross. Where God, who knew our sin, who saw our sin, who saw our choices to distance ourselves from him, pursued us and made his not by making us like him, 
not by in giving a certain rhetorical style, a set of rules, a style of dress, but by sending his son in the flesh to die for those who are alienated in their sins. He is our hope. He is our salvation. Brothers and sisters, Olivia belongs. Olivia fits in. Olivia is part of Christ's church. I don't know whether she's going to grow to be a nice, reformed Presbyterian who can speak the catechism. I don't know whether she's going to like rap music or country or opera. I don't know whether she's going to be an artist or a philosopher or into science. I don't know any of those things about her, any of her styles, any of her preferences. She does not belong to us because of any of those things. We do not belong to her because of any of those things. And many of those things may be different. And things about us may make her uncomfortable, and things about her might make us uncomfortable. But the reason that she belongs to us is because Christ died on the cross for her sins, just as he did for our sins. And that, not our preferences, not our styles, is what binds us together, what causes us to belong, because we belong to him. We belong to another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the unsearchable depths and wisdom of your word are beyond us and beyond me. But we pray that by your spirit, some of the truth of what we have discussed and reflected on this morning would remain with us, would instruct us, convict us, and encourage us in the hope of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.